The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Know that the Lord is God, it is he that made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Let us pray. Almighty God, your only Son came to earth in the form of a slave and is now enthroned at your right hand, where he rules in glory. And as he reigns as king in our hearts and as Lord over his creation, may we rejoice in his peace and give thanks for his justice and mercy. For with you and the Holy Spirit, he rules now and forever. Amen. Our first hymn is number 66, God is Known Among His People. Jesus came and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand, or near at hand. So let us turn away from sin and turn to Jesus Christ, confessing our sins in penitence and faith. Let us pray together. O gracious and faithful and condescending God, God of peace, Father of mercy, God of all comfort, we confess before you the evil of our hearts, We acknowledge that we are too inclined toward anger and jealousy and revenge, to ambition and pride, which often give rise to discord and bitter feelings between others and us. 
Too often have we thus both offended and grieved you, O long-suffering Father. Forgive us this sin and permit us to partake of the blessing you have promised the peacemakers who shall be called the children of God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. The Son of Man, that is Jesus Christ, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin, Jesus Christ indeed does ransom and pays the price for our sin so that we might be reconciled to God. This is the good news of the gospel. And let us say, praise be to God. Holy family of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle exhorts the church in his letter to the Ephesians to lead a life worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Christian character includes humility. Our Lord was humble, and the Holy Spirit creates humility in us. In the epistle, humility is literally lowliness of mind, and it's contrasted with that High, uh, that with being high-minded or haughty. As a God-given virtue, it acknowledges one's true defects and, and gifts. So it recognizes our limitations, our weaknesses, those things that um, are not perfect about us, but it also recognizes the gifts and abilities and strengths we've been given. We all have limits to what we can do and what we understand and, and what, how we're able to live our lives. Some of those limits are because of who we are as an individual, and others are because of our sin. So there are natural limitations that just come from being a creature, and then there are those limitations that come because of sin and the history of sin in our life. A humble person recognizes those limits and acknowledges them. We're not to think of ourselves as greater than we are. Humility is accepting the reality about ourselves. As our Lord creates humility in us, we submit to him as the one who is greater. There is a, an element of transcendence in all of this where we are the ones who are humble, recognizing who we are in, in every way, and God is the one who is perfect and complete and true in all his ways. And so we recognize that. As our Lord creates humility in us, we are to submit to him as one who is greater than we are and upon whom we depend for all things. Consequently, by doing this, we're set free from thinking too highly of ourselves, and that freedom means that now we praise God, we acknowledge he is the one who is great and perfect and good, and we are set free to serve others because we're no longer trying to assert ourselves over others, trying to prove that we're better than they are. Instead, we can serve them in the freedom of humility. You were called in Christ to be humble. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 141, God in the Gospel of His Son. Oh. 
Let us pray now for those in need. Merciful Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that you bestow upon us through Jesus Christ, the pardon that we've heard, and that we are then brought into the ministry of Jesus Christ, and that we can participate in his intercession and his standing for those who are in great need. We pray for those in the church as well as those out in the world for Um, the things that are needed according to your will. We bless you that Jesus Christ did not give up on us or abandon his journey to the cross, but remembered our captivity and sin and went on to set us free. And we do thank you that as he has done so, we can continue in this ministry. Even if we don't see great changes and things for which we pray, we can be confident that you are at work in those things. and that you are faithful to bring all things to their good conclusion. O Lord, as you created this world and have not given up on it, but in fact you redeem it in Jesus Christ, preserve your moral order of right and wrong, which seems to be um, so much in question and um, challenge today, including the order of humanity that is male and female. Grant us just government with policies that are not based in the ideologies that, that people come up with, but in the reality of your creation. We pray for the reclamation of moral order in this world as God, as, as you, O oh God, have created it. We pray for the turbulence of the nations of this world to be calmed by your power. 
so that peace may be known in Ukraine and North Korea and China, Philadelphia and Chicago, New Orleans, Metro Detroit, and other cities in our nation. We also pray for the reclamation of marriage from deviant pleasures, so that husbands would love their wives and wives would honor their husbands for the good of the family and society. And we pray for the respect of unborn infants, for immigrants, Asians, Jews, minorities, and the elderly as sacred human lives. Even those who have become confused about their own identity, let us remember their humanity and treat them as such. Here are our prayers for our nation and our society. We also pray for Joe Biden, our president, for Gary Peters and Debbie Stabenow, our senators, for Gretchen Whitmer, our governor, that we may be led with humility and justice and honesty. And we pray that morally good decisions would be made by our Congress and our Supreme Court. We pray that the poor would be truly helped. Hear our prayers for those who lead us. Our Father, lead and keep the Church of Jesus Christ in this world. May it grow and bear good influence wherever it is gathered. And let the word of Christ be proclaimed by the church's preaching and that the celebration of the Lord's Supper and baptism would be uh, maintained and rightfully administered um, according to your word. We pray that the deeds of your people would reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may this world in turn believe in Christ as Lord and Savior repent of its ways. Here are our prayers for conversion of those who deny Jesus Christ. We pray for our missionaries to Uganda, for Charles Jackson and James Fulkert, for Chris Verdict and Mark Essendelf, Leah Hopp and Tina DeYoung, Angela Vascule, their families that are as much involved in, their, in the work there as, as, as their father's. And we pray that you keep them safe and help them to be able to move about freely and teach Christ. We also pray more locally for Steve Igo and Jerry Newmeyer, Mick Kinnearum at Cedar OPC in Jenison. And for Steve Igo, as he's on sabbatical, that it would be a time of rest for him with his wife. We also pray for John Terrell at Living Hope Mission Work. Here are our prayers for these uh, missionaries and for the local ministry uh, ministering our presbytery, hear our prayers. Gracious Lord, we are frail and we falter as we follow Christ. Each one of us knows that. Our needs are many, and we pray for your merciful care. Heal those who are sick, frail in body, or troubled in heart and mind. We pray for Eduardo and for Jeff and Fawn for Tammy and her family, for Don, for Frida, and for our friends, Becky and Karen, Tom, Dominic, Caroline, Phil, Bob, Angie, Vicki, and others we name to you one by one. Strengthen us all in body and soul <coughs> to be faithful followers of Christ. Help us, O blessed Lord, we entrust ourselves to you 
to you, O Father, praying as our Lord Jesus Christ has taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. Please be seated and uh, join as we uh, join with me as we pray uh, for the illumination uh, while we read this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us this morning to come and worship you. We thank you as well for giving us your word and uh, allowing us to uh, open it, to read it in our own language, um, to think about it, to talk about it collectively. And we pray that as we uh, do those things this morning, that by your Spirit, you would open our hearts to understand it, and that we would be edified uh, by our reading this morning, not to our, uh, not to our own glory, but to your glory. And um, we just pray that you would do these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Daniel. Chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, 
Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs! How mighty are his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astronomers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that the top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which food was found food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. 
Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will." And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field." And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws." At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right. And his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Our Psalter response comes from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, and cast away their cords from us. 
The Lord holds them in derision and terrify them in his fury, saying, On Zion, my holy hill. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Our epistle reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Finally, our gospel reading this morning is from the gospel of Mark chapter 4. Verses 30 through 32. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. And puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The word of the Lord. Our lesson from Daniel chapter 4 is a story about a tree, a king, hubris, and the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and in that dream was a tree. He describes this tree in verses 10 through 12 in Daniel 4. It was no ordinary tree. Its branches spread out far across the earth. 
It was strong and sturdy. When you looked at this tree, it was expansive. As for its height, it rose far above the other trees. If you stood below it and looked up, it reached way up into uh, up towards heaven. If you, it, it looked like you could climb up its branches up and up and up and meet God. This tree looked like a bridge between heaven and earth. This tree seemed to be at the center of the world because it towered over the other trees. When you scanned the horizon, your eyes were drawn to this tree more than any of the other trees. This tree was more beautiful than the other trees. Its branches were thick with leaves that danced in the breezes. Dew and light sparkled on them. Its form was solid and well put together. But this tree was not just a marvel to behold. It was a tree that gave life to all those who lived under it. Birds lived in its branches. Animals grazed under it. All kinds of people lived under the tree. They could work and rest, eat, and raise their families in its shade. As the tree grew, more and more people lived under it, and this tree provided food for them all. The soil under it smelled rich with nutrients, and it was fertile, producing bushels of grain for everyone to eat. And the tree itself was loaded with fruit. The fruit could be gathered, and there was always enough for everyone. And this tree gave protection. Those who lived under this tree had shelter. The hot sun could not smite them. There was no fear from predators because the tree protected those who resided under it. Now, trees are a common symbol in the Old Testament and in the ancient world for kings and kingdoms. The book of Ezekiel often tells stories with trees that represent different kingdoms. So, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 17, the Lord talks about planting a tree on the mountain of Israel, and this is what it says. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, says the Lord God, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. And then in Ezekiel 31, it compares Egypt to Assyria and calls Assyria a cedar. A cedar was a type of tree. With beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height, its top among the clouds, it towered high above all the trees of the field. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all the great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant waters. Kings are also described as trees. Isaiah talks about a king who shall come forth, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, along with the tree in this story, there is the king. Specifically, it was King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. But the king and the tree are not independent of each other. We're not to hear this story as if they're just describing different objects that really have not much to do with each other. No, they're not independent of each other. Daniel, in his interpretation of the dream, says, The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heaven lived, 
It's you, O King Nebuchadnezzar. It's in verses 20 through 22. He was not merely an individual who happened to be king. The king and the kingdom were intertwined. They were wrapped up together. Without the king, there was no kingdom. And without the kingdom, there was no king. In the story, what happens to the tree happens to the king. The king and his kingdom had achieved much. In verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Now, there are actually inscriptions that have been found, written by the Babylonians of this time, about what they had built. The palace from which the king surveyed his kingdom was one of the fortresses on the north side of the city. There were citadels around the city, and this was on the north side. And the inscriptions and archaeology show us that it had large courts, it had reception rooms, it had a throne room, and it had residences in it. Within its walls were the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. These were vaulted and terraced with an elaborate water supply for trees and plants. It really was a marvel to see what looked like they were hanging, but these these terraces that were jutting out, sticking out all over, filled with plants and trees, and then water that was ingeniously uh, directed into those uh, terraced terraced, uh, platforms for the trees. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar built these gardens for his wife, the queen. Something to think about on Father's Day in a couple weeks. Get to work in your backyard. From the palace, he could see the 16-mile double wall of the inner city that the king had also built. 16 miles around the inner inside part of the city was a double wall that went all the way around, and this wall had eight gates. And what's more, this is uh, really spectacular, the river Euphrates, which is no small river, this river Euphrates ran through the city and right through that area. A processional avenue met the palace, so through this inner part of the city, with, or inside the walls, there was an avenue where they would have processions, and it came in and it met the palace, it came up to the palace, and the king had it decorated with figures of lions, so along the route of the avenue, there were lions that had been um, set into the walls and, and, and figures along the avenue. One gate, one of the eight gates, was decorated more than all the others. It sort of stood out. It was called the Ishtar Gate, and it had images of dragons and bulls on it. And they found this gate, and it's right now in a museum, or they've reconstructed it in a museum in Berlin. The avenue passed through the city to the sacred buildings that had been beautified um, by the king. And the main avenue went up to the temple of Marduk that had a statue of the god in it. So hopefully I've painted a bit of a picture of this inner part of the city where, with, that the king had built up and that the Babylonians had created. The king and his capital city were awe-inspiring. When I was reading about this, I was thinking, man, I want to go to Berlin and see that gate. I looked up Babylon, too, but it's really not very safe to go there these days. But um, it has been, um, you can go see the ruin of Babylon, this part of the city, and, and uh, tour it. So the king was very proud of what he had done. Now, in this story, there's the tree, there's the king, and there's hubris. And hubris is the classical word for excessive pride. 
But hubris is more than pride or arrogance. In classical understanding, hubris was a transgression against God. With hubris, a person defies God and considers himself equal with God or better than God. Hubris claimed something that rightfully belonged to God. And that is exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar did in our story. Verse 30, the king reports that that a year after he had his dream and Daniel had interpreted it, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace and the king said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So he's out looking at at the city, but at his whole kingdom and boasting about what he had done. And he said, Did I not do this? Is this not what I have built and set up? That's hubris because he claimed that by his own power and might, he had established his rule and kingdom. So the king believed that he was sovereign over his kingdom. Now, in traditional Christian theology, hubris is the worst sin. C.S. Lewis called it the anti-God attitude. Pride is the anti-God state, or hubris is the anti-God state, the position in which the ego and the self are directly opposed to God. And a lot of our sins, we're not directly opposing ourselves to God, but with this one, it, it is directly opposed to God. In Lewis's words, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And hubris is a dangerous, exaggerated self-confidence that leads to one's downfall. And there's Proverbs 16, 18 that says, it's it's been turned into a a famous aphorism, pride goeth before a fall. But Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So in the story, in Daniel chapter 4, the king had hubris. So the tree of Babylon had grown tall and was expansive. It was giving provision, protection, and life. King Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom dominated that part of the world, but in his hubris, he was against the Lord. Hubris can overtake any ruler or any governing authority. It doesn't have to be just those elected officials that we have. Any authority can suddenly have or or take up hubris. And there's plenty of that going around these days. When a government believes it can control the church, such as in China, that that's hubris against the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is Lord of the church. You see, it's claiming something that only belongs to the Lord. When governments authorize changing someone's gender, that is hubris against God who created us male and female. God's the one who creates us and gives us our uh, gender identity. Uh, We don't get to decide that for ourselves. Whenever one nation tries to take control of another nation, like Putin and Russia is trying to do with Ukraine, there is hubris in that because God is sovereign over the nations, not any one nation or ruler over all the rest, but God is the one who is sovereign. And so for one nation to suddenly try to take that upon themselves is an act of hubris. And individuals can be filled with hubris also, such as when one person murders another person. It's an act of hubris because it's claiming an authority over the other person's life that only God has. 
Hubris is not just a temptation for rulers and governments. Each one of us can have hubris. If we believe our success, our achievements are because of our own intelligence, ability, and power, we do not thank God, and, and we don't thank God for what we have, then we are asserting ourselves over and against God who blesses us with our abilities and makes them fruitful. Hubris, you see, is not grateful to God. Now, hubris must be controlled for governing authority to rule well. Any government, any authority, it must be controlled if, if that authority is going to rule well. And the story of King Nebuchadnezzar makes clear that the Lord condemns hubris. As the voice from heaven says, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you will be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, until you have learned that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's in verses 31 and 32. I want you to notice how many times the king's hubris is confronted in this story. In the king's dream, God is watching and pronounces judgment on the lofty tree. Verse 17 says, To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets, it over it, sets over it the lowliness of men. So that's one time when the king's hubris is confronted <clears throat> in the dream. And then there's, <clears throat> excuse me, then there's the interpretation of the dream where also the king's hubris is confronted. Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar that the king is the tree and his greatness and his rule is extended to the ends of the earth, but the Lord has decreed that the king would be driven out, his, out of his position as ruler and into the fields where he would live with the animals. I would call that a demotion, wouldn't you? Daniel says this would be for a time until the king knows that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So there's the king's hubris again confronted, verse 24. And the king is even allowed to repent of his hubris. Verse 27, Daniel says, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So God rules the world with righteousness. That word could also mean justice and mercy. The king is urged to reflect in his kingdom the way God rules. And in doing so, if the king does that, then in, he is acknowledging God's sovereignty instead of acting like he's sovereign overall and he can make up how he's going to rule the way he wants. No, it's to reflect the way God rules. And, in, and that is definitely a, uh, a, a humble position towards God's sovereignty. As the story goes on, we're told the king did not repent of his hubris. So one day, while Nebuchadnezzar was looking out over the city of Babylon from the roof of his palace, he boasted, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And suddenly he heard a voice from heaven that pronounced judgment on the king with his hubris. It's in verses 31 and 32. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken... The kingdom has departed from you, and it shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. The king's hubris is confronted several times in this story. God stands against the hubris of governing authorities. 
He does not let the, cub- the hubris that claims it's Lord over the world, Lord over the church, Lord over other people go unchecked. He does not do that. God alone is sovereign. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And no other ruling authority can be God. God confronts rulers with hubris and he reduces them down. Now that reducing down in the case of Nebuchadnezzar was a time of insanity. We could even maybe say, I thought about this as as another sermon, but that hubris with a ruling authority is an act of insanity and and, and leads into an insane uh, position in life. And it can't be sustained. It can't continue. And so the Lord confronts that hubris, reduces it down. Sometimes reducing it down means just death, just taking that person out who is acting as if they're sovereign instead of God's sovereign. We need to hear this when there are so many governing authorities around us with hubris. The Lord rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will, verse 32. God is sovereign over all rulers and governing authorities. The Lord humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and the king ended up acknowledging that the Lord is sovereign over all. The story in Daniel chapter 4 opens and closes with Nebuchadnezzar's confession after he was humbled by the Lord. So we're hearing sort of a, it's put in the, the story's put in an autobiographical form, most of it, where the king is telling uh, what happened to him and his dream and and this whole uh, story. But it begins with his confession, with a confession, and it ends with a confession. In verse 3, the king addresses all the nations, all the peoples of the world with a tone of deference to the Lord God Almighty. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. That's a confession. At the conclusion of the story, the king makes his confession again, starting at verse 34. At the end of the days of his living in the fields of the animals, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And then comes this great confession. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verses 34 and 35. And if that's not enough, the king concludes with these words, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride... He is able to humble the last verse. God is the one who gives life and protection, provision and justice. His rule is the source of all these good things. And if you ran through the Psalms, you would see the Psalms singing and celebrating the fact, rejoicing in the fact that God gives these things, such as Psalm 104 that says, All the creatures look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Psalm 9 says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. Psalm 18 says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. 
He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And again, Psalm 104 says, When you take away the breath of your creatures, they die and return to dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. And lastly, Psalm 145 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Governing rulers are to reflect the life and protection and provision and justice and mercy that God gives. That is to be something they reflect in their rule, in their, in their government. They're to mediate it, you see, but they're not the source of those things. When a governing authority does not mediate life and protection and provision and justice and mercy, then the Lord will take them down. Now, the story of Scripture tells us of another tree, and it's the tree upon which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was hung. And 1 Peter chapter 2 actually calls the cross a tree. It says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And this tree became the center of the earth, the center of the world. The tree in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream looked like it was the center of the earth, especially in the days of the, excuse me, the Babylonian Empire, but it wasn't. The tree of Christ is at the center of the world. The Jesus tree might also be called a kingdom. The rule of God's kingdom grows out from this tree upon which Jesus died, and it has become a kingdom that expands over the whole earth. In our gospel lesson from Mark 4, Jesus likens the kingdom of God to a tree that becomes the greatest of all the others, and its branches grow out far and wide so that the birds of the air can build nests in it and rest in its shade. It's interesting, I remember when I preached this, one of the things that I learned in studying Mark 4 was that the birds were often really just a symbol for nations. So when it talks about the birds will roost, it's talking about the nations. Um, The same thing with the tree of Nebuchadnezzar. The nations are, are gathered under that tree. It was really the Babylonian Empire. So with the tree of Jesus, the nations are gathered in, in its branches and rest in its shade. The tree of Jesus spreads out over the whole world, and those who rest in its shade find the new life of God, they find the mercy and justice of God, and they find refuge in the power of God. It's a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. That's what the Apostle Paul says to the Romans. And at the tree of Jesus, God judges our sin, and he sets the world right. And at this tree, God's mercy forgives us our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But I want you to consider the Lord upon this tree. Consider Jesus Christ. There is no hubris with him. Jesus did not stand on a high mountain looking out over the world and claim it for himself. And that was exactly what he was tempted to do by the devil in Matthew chapter 4. Rather, Jesus brings all things in submission to him and then presents them to the Father, as Paul says In 1 Corinthians 15, God sent his son to us and he came in humility without hubris. And our epistle lesson says that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself and he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And in humility, Jesus established the kingdom of God in this world. Rulers who govern with humility, they may not understand this, but they're reflecting the rule of Jesus Christ. Now, we Christians 
have a prophetic relationship with those authorities that govern us. All those authorities. We have a prophetic relationship with them. We must speak out that those who rule over us are not sovereign. They're under God's rule. For God's dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand. God is sovereign. Not a single ruling authority is sovereign in this world. God rules over them, over those who rule over us. And they're not to claim what belongs to God. They must watch out for hubris. Now, most of us do not have access to our governing authorities, which means we cannot speak to them. It's interesting. I was over in Scotland years ago, and apparently over there the, um, <clears throat> the, the political politicians that serve in the national courts, in, whether it's in Scotland or in England, they have offices in their district. And they're supposed to be in that office certain, you know, certain times of the year so that anybody can walk in off the street. I walked right past some of these offices. And supposedly, theoretically, you could walk in and just sit down and talk to your representative. But that's kind of cool. Now, I actually don't know how often that really happens. I mean, if I was a representative, I'd want to be there as little as possible. But that's supposed to be what they do. And so maybe, potentially, people in those countries have access the average guy has access to those uh, representatives. But in our country, it's much harder. Most of us don't have that kind of access. But we, what we can do is bear witness to the sovereign rule of God, to those with whom we talk about government and political things. In our conversations with others about our rulers, we can say to them, we can remind them, or we can just inform them that God rules over our rulers He is sovereign, not our governing rulers, governing authorities. And don't we need to hear that from each other a lot? Because we very often just sort of have this assumption that they're ultimate, and their decisions are ultimate, and they're terrifying, and we're all, you know, undone by it. And we need someone to tell us, like we're hearing from Daniel 4, that no, God is sovereign, and he's ruling over them. So that is a way that we can prophetically witness to others and just throw it out there in the conversation. You know, there is one who's sovereign over these whom we're all distressed about uh, or who we love inordinately. And so that's one way that we can, um, we can bear witness in a prophetic way of the authority and the sovereignty of God. And we do this out of concern for those who govern us. And I want you to notice this is sort of kind of the last point, but Daniel cared about King Nebuchadnezzar. Did you pick that up in this story? When he heard the king's dream, he was alarmed for the king, verse 19. And out of concern for the king, Daniel counseled him to put away his hubris and practice justice and show mercy to the oppressed. Verse 27, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. That's concern for the king. It's not out of spite that we bear witness to God's sovereignty over our governing authorities like almost a vindictiveness, like I hope you get it right in the eye. It's out of love and concern that we want them to know that no, you are not sovereign. God is sovereign. The Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign over you. And you'd be best best if you um, submit yourself to that. 
The Lord Jesus Christ grant us his grace to confess the sovereignty of God in this world where there is much hubris. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we are taught by your holy word that those who rule over us are under your rule and governance, and that you do dispose and turn them as it seems best to your wisdom. We humbly ask you to dispose and govern the heart of Joe Biden and Gretchen Whitmer and all who sit in government of this nation in all their thoughts and words and works, that they may rule with humility and in deference to your honor and glory. Grant this, O merciful Father, for your dear Son's sake, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us stand and confess our faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is number 310, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Thank you. 
There are many stories in the Gospels about Jesus feeding his disciples, and not just with physical food. We should not, scriptures do not teach us to think of it just in terms of the materiality of it. Uh, he feeds us with his own life so that we may have new life. The Gospel of John is very important for understanding those feeding stories that Jesus um, that tell of what Jesus did. So here's one of those stories. Jesus said to his disciples, bring some of the food that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard the boat and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. We don't have fish up here. You should probably be glad for that in this warm summer. But we do have the bread. And while this is not uh, a, a, the Lord's Supper meal, it is a meal that shows us that none of them dared ask who he was. So as we come to this meal, we dare not ask, who are you, Lord? We know who he is, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the communion meal, Jesus gives himself to us to feed us, meaning that he is the source of our new life with God. Speaking of the reality of that new life that he gives us, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So we rightly bless and praise God. And in the words of Ephesians, we bless God our Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They all come to us through Christ. And in order to seal the promise of his sustaining us with his own life, he did institute the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was arrested, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here at the Lord's table, our Lord meets us, and we are joined together as his people. Those who come to this holy meal promise to trust and love and obey him as the Lord of every realm of life, as we heard from Daniel 4. He is sovereign and rules over all, and we are to live in love and concern for each other. All who have been baptized, who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, and are communicant members of a Christian church are invited to come and share in this joyful feast of our Lord. Join me now in giving thanks to God for our new life and salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Almighty God, you are good to us all. Your face is turned towards your world, and your mercy and goodness goes forth. Yes, you do judge our sin, but your mercy is given as well. And in love you gave us Jesus Christ, your Son, to rescue us from sin and death. Your word goes out to call us home to that city where all the heavenly hosts sing your praise, singing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Most Holy Father, we give you thanks for every gift that comes from heaven, but especially for Jesus Christ. Into the darkness he came as your light, and with the grace of your salvation and the gospel word, he touched those who were untouchable 
with grace and washed the guilty clean. We remember how the crowds came out to see your son, and yet in the end they turned on him. And on the night he was betrayed, he came to table with his friends to celebrate the, the uh, work that he was doing to free us from our sin. Jesus blessed you, Father, for the food. He took bread, he gave thanks, and gave it to his disciples. He also gave the cup to his disciples and said, Do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, Father, with this bread and this cup, we celebrate the cross in which he died to set us free from sin. Defying death, he rose again and is alive with you to plead for us and for your whole church. By your Spirit uniting us with Christ, may our eating of this bread and drinking of this cup be for us a communion in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all who share this food offer ourselves to live for you and be welcomed at your feast in heaven where all of creation worships you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. With one voice we offer our thanksgiving and we say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and after giving thanks he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. He who believes in me shall not hunger, but will have eternal life. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat. Let us pray. Merciful God, our Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, fed the hungry with the bread of his life and the word of his kingdom. Renew your people with your heavenly grace, and in all our weakness, sustain us by your true and living bread, who is alive and reigns now and forever. Amen. Our final hymn is, O God, We Praise Thee, number 105. steadfastness of Jesus Christ, and the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen.
Let's take a moment to look at our Life Together page in the bulletin. Um, we will have, starting at the upper left, we will have um, Christian Ed today um, continue our conversation through the book Gentle and Lowly. Um, we had, as you know, um, a conversation um, last month um, thinking about uh, the transition to looking for a pastor, um, priming the pump, so to speak, to think about what we're looking for, what, who we are as a church and, and what we're looking for to grow. Um, and we will have another such conversation in two weeks' time on June 25th. It will be, uh, we'll be presenting, asking another series of questions. Uh, for you to consider. So please be aware of that and try to attend. It has also been mentioned that we are preparing to host, be a host site for the Celebrate Recovery um, ministry that exists. Uh, A lot of churches, different churches sponsor those. And we will have a presentation on our uh, effort to do that, celebrate recovery, on July 9th um, after worship in place of Christianette. And um, Amy will present that. I, there's a women's prayer meeting next this week, Thursday, up um, up at the beach, as we used to say in North Branch. Could never beat those guys, the Harbor Beach Pirates. I, anyway, that's where the ladies' prayer meeting will be hosted. Please ignore my ruminations there. Um, that's all I have. I, I wanted to. Um, this picks up, right? So I wanted to tell you a little bit, update you on the jail ministry. I went last Friday, so we go the second and fourth Friday. You know, there's a cobweb here. I wanted to do that during the sermon, but I resisted. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, um, so we go the second and fourth Fridays of the month, and I went last Friday, and. Uh, I have to say, the, the time before that in May, I felt like it was a bust. You know, I just felt like it didn't go that well, and I wasn't real clear, and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I went this time. We had four guys who came, and, and it was great. It was just a <clears throat> wonderful time. Um, I talked about how uh, God has always communi- created us for community, you know, and then if, with Christ, there's new community. And so I went through and, and explained that, uh, told them that. But they were loaded with questions, and they'd obviously been talking, and they had a fair amount of knowledge, and we talked about all kinds of things, and, and it was very interactive, and, and they seemed to really, well, they said they really appreciated um, my coming there, uh, these four guys. And um, so, anyway, just continue your prayers. It's not always easy to lead these things, but when it breaks out and when 
you see God at work um, in some ways that you know you can really tell. It's very encouraging and and helpful for those guys. So um, just remember that and and keep praying for them. And I didn't get all their names. I have to hand in the sheet to the deputy. So I sometimes don't get the names in my head. Otherwise, I would have included them in the prayer. But um, anyway, it was it was good. Very good. Okay, enjoy some C&C, coffee and conversation, before Christian Ed starts. <laughs>